you are listening to the Spiritual Warrior Coach with Barbara Sabin, the podcast for discovering how powerful your wisdom, compassion, and courage is. Get ready to join Barbara and her guests as they explore and offer you advice on how to reclaim your power, your energy, and your authentic self. And now, here's the host of the show, Barbara Sabin. Well, thank you for joining me today and welcome. I am Barbara Sabin, your spiritual warrior coach, and I am here to help you reclaim your power, your energy, and your authentic self. I am a certified clinical and medical hypnotherapist, Reiki master and teacher, and energy healing specialist. I am a life coach and best-selling author of Gentle Energy Touch, The Beginner's Guide to Hands-On Healing. You know, I have been helping my clients for over 35 years, and the older I get, hmm, the more wisdom seems to come through. So isn't it time that you believe in yourself? Your mind is going to provide you with your greatest challenges in life because it's so very, very powerful. So let's you use it for positive thinking, creating harmony balance, peace, love, happiness, and anything else that your heart desires. Because one day, the world will tap you on your shoulder and say, this is your time to shine. And before I introduce my very special guest, Michelle Dickinson, I'd like to begin with an inspirational story. And this one is called The Lost Watch. Once a farmer he lost his gold watch in his big barn. And as it was not only expensive, but it also had very sentimental values to him. And he spent a lot of time searching among the hay, but he gave up and he could not find his watch and he couldn't understand where this watch was. So there were some children playing near the barn and then he went out there and he, he asked them, how about coming inside and helping me find my watch. And whoever finds the watch, there will be a reward. And the farmer, you know, was he was really about to give up because then all the children went in the barn. No one was able to find this watch. They searched everywhere. And then the farmer actually, he gave up because he couldn't understand where this watch went to. When a little boy asked to be given another chance, and the farmer gave the boy permission, and the boy went back to the barn. And after about 20 minutes, the little boy came out holding the gold watch in his hand. And the farmer was surprised. And he asked the boy, how did you find the watch when all of us failed? The boy said, all I did was sit quietly on the ground and listen. And after a while, in silence, I heard the ticking of your watch. So I just looked for it in that direction. The moral of the story is here. Silence offers us a peace of mind. And then we are able to think clear and see what we need to see. So now speaking about thinking, clearing and a special shining guest right now, I'm going to bring her on. Oh, let's see now. <laughs> 
Hello, how are you, Michelle? I'm great, Barbara. It's so good to see you. Thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. And let, let me uh, introduce you to everyone. Uh, Michelle Dickinson, she is a well-being strategist and a passionate mental health advocate. She is also a TEDx speaker and a published author of a memoir entitled Breaking Into My Life. And Michelle goes first and sees herself as the bridge that helps people get comfortable with their mental health so that they can reach out and get the support that they need before they hit a crisis. And she makes it okay to not be okay and thrives on making a real difference in the lives of others, especially around their well-being. So welcome, to Michelle. And I'm so honored to have you, you know, on the show. And, you know, and I know, you know, mental health is such an important topic. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Thank you so much for wanting to talk about this topic and for having me on to talk about it. It really, really is. Um, you know, if you look at the statistics, 42% uh, of the global workforce has experienced some type of decline in their well-being since the beginning of the pandemic. So that just gives you some uh, you know, data around how prevalent uh, compromised well-being is right now more than ever. Oh, without a doubt, a lot, many of my clients that used to be very happy and uh, always smiling, they come in to see me now and they're very, they're depressed. They don't feel too well. Things are starting to change with them. And it's all because number one, they spent almost a whole year, you know, inside their homes. Uh, the children were on Zoom all the time doing school and uh, they felt like they had no freedom. And a lot of them began to drink and do a little crazy stuff. And unfortunately, uh, we're getting them all back into the swing of, you know, being healthy again, you know, and, and you know, uh, not to change the subject, but, you know, I know like for yourself, um, you were a caregiver for your mom. Yeah. And um, again, I know that feeling because I was a caregiver for my mother and father. Uh, and one had um, dementia and the other one had Alzheimer and it was very challenging. Can you tell my listeners like how, how you were able to get through all of this? Sure, sure. And you know, Barbara, these are roles that we didn't volunteer for. These are roles that are sort of just given to us and we have to figure it out, you know? Um, you know, my mom had bipolar disorder and back then there was no bipolar one, bipolar two, it was just manic depressive uh, disorder or bipolar disorder. And she, from as little as I can remember, um, you know, she would run around and have her episodes of extreme mania to deep depressing lows. Mm. Um, the mania was like Disney, you know, lots of good, you know, happy energy, lots of good stuff. And then the depression was really, really hard because she would cry and be completely unconsolable. There was nothing you could do. And as a little girl, you feel paralyzed and um, you just want to take that pain away. And so for a large part of my childhood, I was trying to do whatever I could to keep their, the peace in the home and keep my mom even keeled. Mm. So, but I didn't know any different, you know, people say, well, you, you didn't have much of a childhood because of that, but that was my normal. And I didn't really know any other way. So, you know, as kids, we can be extremely resourceful and getting what we need in the face of challenge. So uh, fortunately for me, I was surrounded by 
aunts and grandparents and uh, mothers of my girlfriends and all of those things sort of helped me get through it. So is that actually because of all the situation with your mom and all the struggle that you had? Is, is that why you actually got into this field of work? Yeah, you know, it's a very interesting story. I had uh, 19 years, I worked in a corporate environment, corporate job. Um, very fortunate, I laugh at myself and say, you know, for someone who went through a lot, I, I, I pulled myself up on my bootstraps, I went to college, I got a master's degree, all of this, and found myself in a great job. I started as a secretary, ended my, my career in the corporate space um, as a director, and I was, some, I was something I was pretty proud of. Um, and then I just, you know, it was one of those things where somebody nominated me to give a, a TED talk. They knew my story of my childhood. And so they nominated me and it was something that laid dormant. Nothing I really was ever talking about. I had this idea, maybe one day I'll write a book, who knows. Um, but then I give the TED talk and everything changes. I start to see the power of storytelling and how that opens a doorway for other people to just be able to share and relate to what I went through. And that got me really connected to wanting to do more with, with my story. Um, and, and also I was diagnosed with depression, going through a life challenge, I'm adopted. So I thought I will never deal with bipolar disorder. Mm -hmm. um, but then I, I found myself dealing with depression and having to navigate that. So both of those scenarios really got me connected to, okay, so what, what else is there for me to do in the world? And it was turn my mess into my message by doing the work that I'm doing now. Wow. That's being um, very brave. Yeah. I don't, I don't see it that way. I see it as like, you know, I feel like the two most important days of your life are when you're born. And the second is when you find out why. And I don't think I was ever destined to sit behind a desk and work in a corporate job and not be fulfilled and do work that I knew was making a real difference to people and to humanity. So for me, it was just like, okay, so that's the next step. That, that's where I'm supposed to go next is tell my story, help people create more compassion in the workplace, something I, I definitely missed when I was diagnosed was we need more, more love and compassion in the workplace. And you know what? It's possible. Oh, so. without a doubt, it's possible. I know, you know, I was a re regional sales manager many years ago for general nutrition centers. And um, the area I supervised, Brooklyn, Queens, Long Island, Staten Island, all the really tough areas. Um, and the, the, those locations did very poorly. And when I went in as a supervisor, I, I realized that all they needed was some love, some acceptance, understanding, and teaching, mm -hmm. and, and, and helping them learn what it was they needed to learn. And then we became number one for three consecutive years. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing when you, you treat people you know, with respect, and yeah. you show them that caring, things without a doubt you know, changes. Oh, hands down. I mean, <clears throat> I, I reflect on, you know, some of those really horrible experiences that I had when I was diagnosed with depression and my boss telling me I wasn't being bubbly enough at work, you know, 
you know, those are the contrasting moments when you say like, that is not what I would ever want to be when I grow up. And I would be the complete opposite and want to connect with them and understand what they were going through. Um, so I think that those experiences really do show up and remind us that we are, per we are people before we are employees, you know, and, and I think, um, to expect someone who might be struggling with a mental illness to put that illness on the shelf and go to work. It's just completely unrealistic, yeah. you know? So yeah, without a doubt, it's unrealistic because we all have, we all have challenges. We all face different yeah. things and we need to be more understanding. I feel. Absolutely. You know, uh, yeah, some of us are having a bad day and unfortunately you bring it to work and then people look at you like you're crazy or something's not right. But we don't know that person's circumstances in their home. We don't right. know what is happening. You know, like for myself, you know, with my my mom and dad, it was it was hard having a father that many times didn't know who I was, you yeah. know, and a mom uh, with Parkinson's. And I tried my very best to go to work and have that smile on my face. But inside, man, I was hurting. Uh -huh. Yeah, it's hurting. Yeah. And it, you know, it was challenging. But um, yeah, we seem to get through it, don't we? And, and our purpose and passion seems to really come out because then we, we want to help other others. Um, yeah. And know that they're not alone. Right. And, and, you know, we never know what people are dealing with. I think that what you just mm -hmm. shared is a perfect example. Like we need to be treating people with more um, kid gloves, more kindness, more compassion, because we don't know, maybe they're not comfortable divulging what they're dealing with at home, but maybe that's why, you know, they might be a little bit distracted. I, I just think that, you know, never assume how people are dealing, what, what they're dealing with. It, you know, at the end of the day, you have no idea. Well, without a doubt. So, you know, can you maybe explain to me how actually to care for ourselves and those, you know, that are mentally ill, you know, yeah. what, what can we do to help them? You know, I, um, so that's such a great question. And the work that I get to do in the corporate world right now is deliver uh, programs that recenter employees, because as I mentioned, you know, we have a lot of people who for the first time might be dealing with an imbalance in their well-being, and they just might not be comfortable reaching out and getting cl clinical support, right? It all depends on our relationship to care, our relationship to our brain. So um, some of the things that I teach in my resilience programs is just the exercise of a self audit. You know, um, how you're doing, how you feel when you wake up in the morning. A lot of us are reflective of the physical uh, pains that we're feeling in our bodies, but are we, really, are we really plugged into how we're feeling emotionally? And do we know what to do when we don't feel so great? It could be as simple as I need to go outside for a walk or I need to call my girlfriend and have a conversation with her. It's knowing yourself and knowing how you're doing and, and not being so busy that you're not reflecting on how you're doing. So that's like the first thing I like to remind people to do is the self audit. Mm -hmm. You know, some of the other things, um, it's just checking in on the ones that you love. Um, making sure that they're okay, not assuming that they're okay, right? We, we tend to put on a face and, and it's the ones that put on the face that we really should be worried about. Um, so that's really, really important. And then the other thing is, let's stop relating to mental health as mentally ill or mentally well. 
it, it's a continuum and we glide across that continuum and life experiences show up for us mm -hmm. and compromise a little bit. And then, and then, you know, we're back in a different place. So let's just start to realize that we're all gliding across that continuum. And it's not a matter of he's sick or he's well, it's just, you know, we're just navigating our life experience. So, and I think when we do that, we can also start to have a healthier relationship to brain health because the brain at the end of the day is just another organ in our bodies, yet there's such a stigma around it that prevents so many from getting care. Yeah, I, I know that um, I'm, I'm still so surprised to actually to hear that this there still is a stigma with mental illness and and how that's affected those that that actually need help and i i feel that there there is a lack of um either organizations or uh, areas where they can f go to and discuss their their challenges with with others yeah i mean when you think about uh, mental health and you think about um you know somebody a perfect example is this entire pandemic right we've been asked to be quarantined. We've experienced a massive amount of loss, whether it's loss of a loved one, loss of routine, loss of things we love to do. Um, <clears throat> you, you put all that together and people for the first time might be dealing with imbalances, but yet they don't know how to navigate that. So it's a matter of, you know, when you're talking to someone, just check in with them and see like, is their behavior a little bit different than you know them to be? Is there something that seems a little off and not being afraid to ask, hey, how are you doing? I'm noticing that you, you're, you're not quite yourself and I just wanna check in on you. Um, it's not like I'm gonna have to diagnose you. I'm going to have to tell you what to do. It's, it's a matter of really just listening, being present and extending your heart and even maybe divulging something about yourself where I once felt anxious or I once felt I was dealing with depression when I went through this. It just makes it more human and more accessible and you create a safe space for other people. And that's priceless. Well, yeah, they have to know that they're not alone. Exactly. And, and, I, and I feel <clears throat> a lot of them feel alone. Yeah. And, and or they're, they're, they're judged uh, because they're not the way they used to be. Right. People judge them, and right. that's that's such a shame when people do that. Right. I mean, but you also have to recognize that we all come to the table with our own biases. You know what it was like to care for your parents. You know what disease looks like. I know what it looks like. But there are people in the world that have no no understanding of it outside of what the media has told them or a shooting has taught them. So we all have our own biases around it. So. I try to remember that when I hear someone say, well, you know, I just tough, I just, you know, I've never had a mental illness. I just power through it. I, I, I'm strong. And you say to yourself, wow, like that's their understanding of a mental illness that, you know, that they're tougher than the person that's struggling. And that's not the case, no. but that's their reality of what they know to be true. So we also need to have compassion for the ignorance, so to speak. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I hear many times someone say, oh, just get over it. But yeah. it's not that easy just to get over it when when someone is suffering in your home. And it may not be, a, 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 you know, your, a, a spouse or a child or parents. It could be your pet. 
And oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I noticed you have a few guys walking around. Back I know. Yeah. I'm like, hoping that they don't bark. I know they oh, bark during your story. Um, yeah, I have three. And to be honest with you, Barbara, they have been my, they have been uh, my little healing buddies throughout this pandemic. Cause it's just us, the three of us, the three dogs and me. Uh -huh. So they've been, they've been amazing. I have two Jack Russells and a Corgi and I love them all. Oh, they're adorable. I'm, I'm watching them in the back. <laughs> I just want to just squeeze them a little bit. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, I, I know you've written a book called Breaking Into Life. Yes. Um, can you tell us a little bit about it and why, why you wrote it? Yeah, sure. So after I gave the TED Talk and I had this re reaction from people about my story, I said, wow, I gave a 10 minute TED talk, what could I do if I wrote a book about it, right? Because it really was a short version of what life was like loving and caring for my mom. Um, and so I sat down and wrote the book, it took me four years to write the book. My goal was to humanize mental health for the people who maybe don't have a relationship to mental illness and understand it more because with understanding we diminish stigma and people don't have these preconceived notions. I wanted them to see that my mother was a beautiful, loving, caring woman, and she had a diagnosis of bipolar disorder. Um, so that was the goal. So it's a very vivid reflection of my childhood, my young adult years, my, um, you know, my adolescence and my young adult years. And, and then um, looking back now, reflecting on how all of that has served me in the work that I do now and shaped me into the woman that I am. Um, and my goal is really to help people um, step in my shoes and understand what it was like for me. Um, and, and maybe the next time they meet someone who has a diagnosis, they're, they're more compassionate to them. Well, yes, and, and I can relate to that um, because I had gone through a very bad depression after my grandma died. Um, and no one really understood <clears throat> you know, uh, even my mom would say, you know, you, you're just grieving, you know, you need to get somewhat get over it. Yeah. But sometimes it puts you in that state that you, you need to talk to somebody or yeah. let somebody know, you know, that you're really hurting inside. And I think yeah. a lot of that, that's where um, um, some people fail. Yeah. They, they don't take the time to say, okay, what is it that that's really got you down? Yeah. Yeah. Acknowledging the sadness, moving mm -hmm. through the stages of grief, you know, not suppressing it and pretending it's not there. So it bubbles up, you know, later. Um, yeah. That's so important to acknowledge how, how we're feeling, why we feel that way, celebrate the love, the love we had for our loved ones so that mm -hmm. we can move on. You know, I mean, I, I think about all the people that couldn't gather around their loved one during the pandemic that they lost, right? And how incomplete they might feel. And, you know, we have to feel those emotions and let them and let them be, you know, and be with it uh, so we can process it and move on. And to think that we can suppress it and ignore it, it's, it's not gonna work. No, we, ha we have to, I feel in my heart, we need to really go through it. Yeah. And, and then at some point, uh, and I, and, some people are ready, some others aren't, you know, to really yeah. allow ourselves to let it go. Yeah. Because yeah. then, then at, at one point, it doesn't really serve its purpose no longer. Right, 
pray. I mean, when I lost my mother, I think I sat on the couch for a week and just cried, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and just cried. Like that was what I needed to do. That was exactly what I needed to do. And, and that was right for me you know, that, that might be different for someone else. Right. Right. So let me ask you, what do you say to people who are actually suffering with mental illness themselves or like in our case, as, as being a caregiver? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, the problem we have in our society is a lot of people suffer in silence or even worse, as we go through this pandemic, um, people diminish how they're feeling because everybody's going through the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Everybody's going through it. What do I have to complain about? I still have my job, you know, and, and then they, then they ignore it. And then before you know it, like they're not doing well, and then they're hitting crisis. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's a matter of, we all have a role to play in opening the conversation. I think that when we can open the conversation, people can feel less uncomfortable acknowledging how they're doing. You know, I, I don't know that, you know, we know who's suffering in silence until we engage with them and, and just talk to them. Um, and even then it's like, there's still a fear of what's treatment look like. Am I going to be judged? What happens if my boss finds out? What happens if my my brother finds out? You know, we still have that stuff to navigate. So I think that, you know, the first step is really just, we all have a role in in um, opening the conversation as uncomfortable as it might be. Mm-hmm. If you notice something, you, you can't step over it. You have to recognize that you don't have to fix it. You can literally just open a conversation and that could do a world of good. Oh, without a doubt. Why do you think pe- a lot of people fear? Um, having this conversation or mental illness itself, I want to say. You know, it's judgment. I think it's judgment. I think there's a lot of stories out there about how treatment has to look. Treatment nowadays is so different. Treatment doesn't include, doesn't only include a pill that makes you feel numb. Mm -hmm. And I think that we as a society have evolved, you know, and so is treatment for mental illness. So I think there's that. And I also think that, especially you look at men and men's mental health and the reason why more men are committing suicide. And it's like, you know, we've groomed our men to be tough and not show vulnerability and not admit that if they're struggling because it's weakness. Mm-hmm. We have these cultural norms that prevent them from getting care. So there's so many things. And I think also women are starting to suffer more because we feel like we need to be super Superwoman. Yes. Have you noticed that? Oh oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. Like I have a very dear friend of mine and she has four children and a full-time job and she takes care of her husband and she takes care of her kids and she does all of these things for everyone else Mm -hmm. and wonders why she feels depleted. Feels exactly. And I'm like, you have to, you have to make time for you, you know, like you have to make time for you. Yeah. They think sometimes that it's being selfish, but it's not because if if we don't take care of ourselves, how can we possibly help others? It's the old oxygen mask, right? Like yes. if you don't put the mask on yourself, you will never be able to show up for your loved one. And you know, as a little girl caring for my mother, I didn't know better. I would stay up all night with her if that's what was necessary. I would clean the whole house and then I would be completely depleted. Um, but that's so common for caregivers of loved ones with a mental illness is they forego their well-being, hoping by giving a little more, it's going to make them better. 
but at the end of the day, they're not worth anything. They're completely exhausted and they can't help their loved one as they wish. Mm -hmm. So I always say you have to make yourself and make that self-care a priority. It's not selfish to care for yourself. No, it's not. And I know like for myself, I ended up getting a, um, someone to come in and help me with them, with my parents. Yeah. I was, I was starting to get complete burnout. Yeah. And I can feel myself just like going under, you could say. Yeah. And, and I said, all right, I, I have to change the situation here. I need to not be afraid to call some you know, a, a nurse, a caregiver, or somebody to come in and help me for a little bit. Yeah. And, 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 and that, it was okay. And that yeah. wasn't being selfish. It was, no. I needed to take care of myself. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But you know, you know, us women are, you know, we, we give and give and give to a fault. Yep. And then when we have no more to give, we still give. <laughs> I, I know, believe me, I know. <laughs> and then at one point you said, yes, all right, I'm done. <laughs> you know? exactly. I'm up to here. <laughs> yeah. And, and the thing is when we're done, we're really done. <laughs> yeah, and then, you know, it doesn't look too good. <laughs> I know. It's so funny because one of the things I teach in my, in my resilience workshop, uh, I specifically, I feel like I'm specifically talking to women when I say this, I say to them, you need to make daily self, you need to make self-care a daily routine. Mm-hmm. Right. There is no amount of stress over a six month window of time that a spa day is going to resolve. Exactly. Mm-hmm. This is what we do, though. This is what we do. Oh, I know. Right. We hit a tipping point. And we go, I need a spa day. And it's one day. Mm-hmm. And now you have literally had compounded stress and cortisol levels in your body for months that you've not addressed. And you're hoping this spa day is going to resolve it all. But it, it won't. <laughs> exactly. And we can't relax even. No, because you're so wound up. Like <laughs> you have to do stuff daily, whether it's go for a walk, whether it's meditate, whether it's um, you know, something that brings you joy, a craft, something to just have yourself relax because that compounded cortisol is really what causes that dis-ease in the body, which can translate to disease. Oh, without a doubt. And, and it, it's funny because my daughter works full time and remarried and, and has a combination of six children. So wow. <laughs> it's a little crazy. And I tell her all the time, you need to chill out. You need. Yeah. So she started doing yoga, nice. she started meditating. And then she feels so different because I was watching the slow burnout and I would say, oh, you think you're a superwoman, you know, but guess we're not. Yeah, we're not, we're not, we have to take that time out for ourselves. Yeah. I just feel better when I take care of me. I was telling mm-hmm. you before we came on, on live that I went to the beach this morning to watch the sunrise. It literally stops me for a good 30 minutes. I'm doing nothing but being present in nature. And exactly. it's, mm-hmm. it's just so soothing for my soul. And then I come back and I, okay, I'm focused now. I took that time. I needed to, you know, clear my mind, refresh my mind, and now I can focus. We don't realize it helps us be more intentional when we can step away, rejuvenate and come back. Oh, with that, that, and that's why I love, you know, for myself, sometimes just sitting in silence. Yeah. And nothing, just nothing. And, and have nothing in my head also. And then you'd be surprised how you feel. 
It's like you, you, you slept for an hour. Yeah. So true. Yeah. It's uh, <laughs> unbelievable. But um, so do, let me ask you, so uh, like, do you think that people that look to, you know, like a caregiver, like you and I, yeah. Um, and then we, we seek help from, uh, you know, from others. Do you, do you feel that um, in, in a way people look at us like that we're, we're not strong enough to handle it? You know, I, I, what I would say to that is like, this is where we get concerned with, with how we look versus being selfish to care for ourselves. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I think, I think if we lived our lives so concerned about how others perceive us or see us, we will never be joyful and never have that, you know, that joy we deserve. Like who cares if you need, you know, like who Mm -hmm. cares? Like you need help. Like, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. And I don't think that that should be what stops us or prevents us from getting what we need. I, I feel the same way. Cause I know when, uh, this is uh, many years ago when I went through all this, uh, some of my friends would say, oh, you, how much is it costing, you know, to for, for have them, someone come in for like two, three hours. I, at this point, I did not care. Exactly. I know I needed some like away time or, or just to go outside for an hour and just to breathe and relax. Otherwise, you know, I, I could feel myself getting very, um, angry at them yeah I wanted to say when they uh, you know they had that they, they couldn't help themselves right <laughs> but I, I think that's what happens to a lot of us we get very mm-hmm. angry and frustrated and and then we take it out on them and we um and and in turn it actually makes them and us suffer yeah oh absolutely absolutely you, you don't get to show up as the best person that you you know you can be because mm-hmm. you're so stressed out and you're so um, you're, you're so overwhelmed. I mean, I know the way I react to, str- to situations when I'm feeling good and I've nourished myself is very different than when I've, I've had to navigate fires for five hours. It's a very different experience. So if you want to show up the best version that you know yourself to be, you have to do what you have to do to take care of yourself. You have to. Oh, I, I understand. Now I want to ask you... Um... Mm-hmm. And, and I see on television, the, the media seems to always, I don't know if they skip over mental health or they look at it as like a horrible thing. Uh, I wonder why they do that when, when really they should be showing compassion for all mm-hmm. these people and maybe having built more facilities so that yeah. these people can go and, and get help. Right. Yeah. We have a, we have an issue with enough, having there be enough care and access to care Mm -hmm. uh, for people who are severely uh, struggling. And, you know, it starts with, it starts, obviously starts with the government. It's, Mm -hmm. it it also goes back to employers and what they're providing their people. Um, And I think that the, the media plays a very important role in how society sees mental health and I think, you know, I, I'm optimistic. I see the glasses half full because I know what used to, what they used to do. And I feel like with the pandemic, there's a little bit more sense of responsibility that they have to talk more about it because so many people are dealing with it. Mm-hmm. Um, that combined with celebrities coming out and talking openly about their experiences 
the Olympics, mm-hmm. right? Those Olympians who oh, are- Oh, that was, yeah, huge. So, yeah, I mean, it sets the tone. It makes it okay. Like these are people we put on a pedestal, but yet they're opening up. And and that's all very, I think, very promising for what is on the horizon. But fundamentally, um, there's an access to care that we need to do a better job with. You know, um, you know one of the things I- I like to talk to employers about our barriers to care. So you can have an employee who is finally to the point where they're ready to get care. They reach out to their resources, the company's providing, and they are unable to access care for, you know, three months. You can get in and see a doctor in three months. No, they need care now. So what are employers doing to remove those barriers? Um, are they demanding more of their insurance companies that say, oh, well, you get, you know, three or six sessions and you should be fixed. Nine chances out of 10, that's not the reality. So what are employers doing to help, help their employees get the kind of care and adequate care so that they can, um, get back to their, the healthy version of themselves. So there's a lot of opportunities in so many different people's courts to, to, um, you know, improve uh, for for all of us. Well, yeah, I think we, you know, people have to understand that we need to make it relatable. Yeah, they they need to understand that um, they they look at like say for instance the homeless people. Yes, that is a huge problem. Oh and, yeah, and here in California, mm-hmm. it's out of control. Yeah, I mean, everywhere you go, they they're homeless, and. I know I look and I see myself, I, I feel so horrible for them. And a lot of them are veterans mm-hmm. where no nowhere to go. And who knows who else is, is on the street. And sometimes you see a mother with their kids uh, that are homeless. Yeah. And yeah. I, I just don't understand why we do not give them shelter and, and help them, you know, yeah. get jobs and help them with the mental illness that they may be be experiencing. You know, there's so, this is such a complex conversation, but I will say that like, when I think back to my mother's bipolar disorder, she didn't want to take the medication. She wanted to self-medicate. She wanted to, her, her vice was eating. So she would get heavy because she would choose things that made her feel good. And just like anyone who struggles with you know, some type of a mental health imbalance or the pain that they're dealing with, they just want to numb the pain. So a lot of people are, are leaning into vices that are, that are not healthy. And then that leads to addiction. And then the addiction becomes, you know, the, the, the biggest challenge, but what really is under underneath that is the pain of a mental illness. So it's such a complex uh, topic and there's so much opportunity to help people before they reach that point. Um, and you're right. We need, we, we should be doing a better job. Absolutely. Yeah. I really feel in my heart, we should be doing a better job. I, uh, and I know New York city has challenges there too, yes. but oh, here, yeah. uh, everywhere. And I want to say everywhere because I mean, I, I, you know, I travel to Burbank, I travel to, you know, Malibu and, uh, Santa Monica and places like that. And there are tents everywhere. And years ago, before the pandemic, actually, it, it was not nearly as bad. And then once this COVID hit, yeah. uh, it's it's out of control. Oh, and, yeah. yeah. And it's just a shame that these people, they don't have help. Right, right. 
oh yeah, I mean, the people who were just above the poverty level, COVID came and, you know, I mean, it's, it's really unfortunate. And I see it in New York because I'm close to New York, going into New York and you see the amount of drugs on the street, uh, you know, homeless on the street. It, mm -hmm. it, it's, you know, beginning of the pandemic, it was so depressing. You know, I had people that moved because they just couldn't be around it. Oh yeah. It, and I can understand that because it, it's starting to get, you know, a little, a little frightening to an extent, you know, I look at them and I know they really need help, but it's also, we don't know what they're going to do. Right. You know, because some, some have more than just meant it's a, a lot more than it could be schizophrenia could be right. anything, but right. uh, yeah, I think the government definitely needs to do something more about this, you know, without a doubt. Um, <clears throat> do you think, uh, mental illness classes should be taught in school. So, that so, yeah. So here's the thing, you know, I will tell you, um, our relationship to the brain does start when we're little, right? Um, I, I know, uh, just from my years in the corporate space that even the generate, the millennial generation has a better relationship to their brain and to mental health. I mean, they're the ones who, uh, in most cases are, are the source of why companies are doing more around mental health, because you have these people who have come out, who are younger, they've come out of uh, college with an open narrative around it, and they bring that with them, and it sort of forces the hand of employers, which is brilliant. Um, yes, I think that if we can teach children, you know, uh, meditation, breathing techniques, how to deal with anxiety, how to deal, you know, God, my heart goes out to them during this pandemic and the masks and the different entire experience that they've had to have on virtual. But if we can teach them proactively, it's okay to talk about when you're not feeling okay mm -hmm. and give them the tools, whether it's tapping or whether it's meditation or visualizing your happy place, whatever it is, Absolutely. I believe that. I think we need to do a better job. But I will tell you that in the in the workshops that I teach, the adults in the corporate environment, they will come to the class and say, I'm worried about my teen. I'm worried about, you know, my youngster. This is COVID time and I'm, I'm concerned about them. And so I turn that around on them and I say, how do you model good mental health hygiene in your home? How are you modeling? How are you talking about your mental health? Are you talking about I need to go and get a walk-in because I'm not feeling myself. Are you owning how you're doing? Because you normalizing the conversation in the, in the home can have far larger uh, consequences than you, you know, preaching to them, do this, do this for your mental health. Um, so that's important. We all have a role in raising our kids and our grandchildren better um, and having them have an, a really healthy relationship to their brain. Oh, I know. I, um... It my well, I have a total of eight grandchildren and two, two live in Florida. <laughs> the other six, well, one is a Marine. He's uh, he's in Africa guarding the embassy, and um, he we haven't seen him in two and a half years. Hopefully, he comes home soon. And wow. the rest, uh, out of all of them, two actually meditate. Good. And I could I could see the difference from last year to now. Wow, they're, they're calmer. They're able to think clear. Uh, they can deal with any feelings of anxiety that that they have, mm -hmm. and I I feel it's important that we do teach the children mindfulness. Yes, 
Absolutely. And it's Absolutely. not a new age thing. You no, know? it's, 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 uh, it's, it's a survival tool, especially mm -hmm. now, you know, I mean, we're dealing with so much depression and anxiety in our world because of the uncertainty of a pandemic. And, you know, it's a survival tool. You know, if you, if you knew meditation during the pandemic and you leaned into that, chances are that helped you. So absolutely. We need to teach that to our kids. Yeah. So now, uh, just getting back to your book again, do you think there'll be another book? <laughs> you know, it's so funny. So here's the thing. I released that book in 2018 oh, and, okay. um, I I've had people tell me that they, they want the audio book. So what I'm actually focused on now is getting that book into audio oh. and, you know, I haven't read the book since, since I released it. So, um, I'm about to embark on the journey of rereading the book and turning it into an audiobook, and I, I'm quite sure that's going to invoke some emotion because uh, at the end of writing the book, I couldn't read it again. I was like, I can't read this again. It's it's too you know in some cases painful, upsetting. Mm -hmm. So that's my next quest is get my book into audiobook because there's a lot of people that that really are wanting the audio version. So yeah, I think a lot of people listen more than than read. I love to read actually, but um, yeah, yeah. it depends on the author. That, you know, then the audio book is great. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, oh, well, yeah. great. Do I need to think you're going to be doing that? Uh, well, I have to, I have to record chapter by chapter. So hopefully it'll be done. I want to say it's going to be done in the next month or two. Oh, well, good for you. That, that's a, yeah. a great goal to have. So, yep. and do you think after the audio book, there could be another book? I don't know. Maybe. I mean, um, I've always teased, I've always, you know, been teased that, you know, the book, this book is called Breaking Into My Life. And so um, it might be breaking into my heart because I'm single and I'm trying to find <laughs> my, my meat. So it might be breaking into my heart. Who knows? Oh, so it could be anything. Anything goes, right? Anything. Who knows? <laughs> uh, well, Michelle, can you tell my listeners where they can get a hold of you and and the programs that also that you offer, because I know you do offer yeah, programs. I do. I offer workshops. So my two signature programs that I've been offering uh, in the corporate setting is a resilience program for employees to help recenter them with daily strategies and tools that they can implement to feel better. And then I also have a program uh, to empower leaders to lead with compassion and have uh, confidence in engaging their employees if they sense that there's something off a lot of trepidation leaders have about in engaging in an employee if they think they might be struggling. So that's a separate workshop just for people leaders, people uh, in the workplace. And so to find out about, uh, about me and the corporate programs, you'll go to careforyourpeople.com. And to connect with me um, and learn more about my book and about my story, you can go to michelledickinson.com. Okay, you want to repeat that one more time, even though it'll all be in the in the yeah. in the notes. Yeah. <laughs> so my, my corporate programs are careforyourpeople.com. Mm -hmm. And my uh, information about me and my book and my story is michelledickinson.com. Thank you so much. What a pleasure yeah. to have you. Uh, you know, mental health is huge. And yes. we need to be more aware and we need to understand it. And to help those that need the help. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for wanting to talk about it. Oh, I'm sure we're going to probably talk about it again. <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, um, I'm going to sign off for now. And um, 
I want to thank my listeners for listening today, and I hope that you heard what you needed to hear. And again, a big thank you to Michelle Dickinson. So please, you know, uh, visit her and see the programs that she has to offer because um, she's an incredible lady. Believe me, she's gone through a lot and uh, her head is still up high. And I uh, appreciate that, you know, in her. Uh, so, you know, um, if you want to visit me, visit my website, motivateyourlife.net. Uh, and please subscribe to my YouTube channels. I actually have two of them. One is Barbara Saban. And there you, uh, I have grounding meditation, sleep, relaxation, and some other things that I've put up. And please visit and subscribe to this new channel, the Spiritual Warrior Coach channel. So um, again, thank you for uh, listening and have a beautiful day filled with love and with light. Love, Barbara 